0: If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black Bible in the pew in front of you. If you're new to the Bible, Mark is the second book in the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark. The big numbers on your pages are the chapter numbers. The little tiny numbers that you might need your glasses to see are the verse numbers. Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. Genghis Khan was a magnificent ruler. Coming from the humblest of beginnings, he rose to power through his political and military prowess, as well as his reputation for extreme violence. At the peak of his empire, Genghis Khan controlled a stretch of land across Asia that is basically the size of the continent of Africa. By the age of 30, Alexander the Great had conquered most of the known world through sheer will of force and military might. He even defeated the Persian Empire. Napoleon, the general slash emperor, conquered massive swaths of Europe, North Africa, Central Asia, at one point ruling over the lives of over 70 million people. Cyrus the Great built and ruled over the Achaemenid Empire perhaps the largest empire that the pre-modern world had ever known. These men were mighty warriors, fierce generals, violent dictators, powerful visionaries, and all of them were very obviously the rulers of their domain. When you think about great and powerful kings throughout history, whether they were called kings or emperors, these are the men that you think of, and more. Julius Caesar, Charlemagne, Henry VIII, Louis XIV, Augustus, Nero, Caligula, Marcus Aurelius, Richard the Lionheart, and the list could go on. One of the main characters in today's account was not a king, but a governor. His name was Pilate, not Pilate. Pilate would have been well acquainted with, with the concept of a king. He ruled under a king, called an emperor. And he would have very likely held aspirations of one day becoming something like a king himself. And so you can perhaps imagine the confusion, the skepticism, and perhaps even the mockery in his voice as he looks at Jesus covered in spit, beaten, and bloody. And he asked him the question, are you the king of the Jews? Let's read the text. Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Amen? At the end of Mark chapter 14, in verse 61, Jesus identifies himself as the Son of God, and the Messiah. The camera pans from this scene with Jesus standing before the Jewish tribunal over to Peter in the courtyard as Peter denies Jesus three times. After that, here at the beginning of chapter 15, the camera pans back again once more to Jesus. Mark tells us that the religious leaders have a sort of brainstorming session going on as they prepare to take Jesus before the Roman rulers. The text says that they have to consult with one another. This consultation has to do with how they're going to present their case to the Roman rulers, particularly to Pilate. Remember, the Jews don't have the authority to execute anyone on their own, as bad as they might wish that they could. They need permission from Rome in order to do that. The council must take Jesus and hand Jesus over to Pilate in order to have Pilate render a judgment and sentence him to execution. But getting Pilate to execute Jesus, it's not so simple. You see, Jesus is popular. And Pilate is a politician. And all of these events are transpiring during the events of Passover weekend. This is a very tense time for the Romans. This is a very tense time for Pilate. His main objective is keeping the peace during this time. Pilate knows that during this Passover weekend, things can get out of hand. This religious celebration can quickly whip up the nationalistic zeal of the Jews and lead to yet another uprising, another attempt of the Jews to throw off the shackles of Roman rule. Pilate knows that to kill a popular Jewish prophet on Passover weekend would be very bad politics. And make no mistake about it, my friends, Jesus is popular. If you haven't been here walking with us through the book of Mark, you may not have seen it on a week-by-week basis, but Jesus is popular. I once heard a pastor describe Jesus as a rock star. While I find that language slightly problematic, I think I understand what he intended to communicate, right? Everywhere that Jesus went, the crowds flocked to him. In Mark 2, 4, the paralyzed man had to be lowered down through the roof because there were so many people around the house that nobody could get in. Eleven verses later, Jesus starts teaching by the lake and a crowd comes to him. The same thing happens in 3, 7. In three twenty, we read that Jesus and his disciples couldn't even eat because the crowd of people had begun to swarm them again. In Mark 4, we read that the crowd was so large that Jesus had to get into a boat so that he wouldn't be trampled. In Mark 5, we read that Jesus left one crowd, got into a boat, crossed the lake, and when he got to the other side of the lake, there was another crowd there waiting for him. In Mark 7 and 8, Jesus had to deal with the crowds, part of which included feeding them. That's where we get the feeding of the 5,000 and feeding of the 3,000. Mark 9 again tells us of another crowd gathering to Jesus. Mark 10 has Jesus going into Judea, and again, a crowd gathers to him. In Mark 11, the religious leaders couldn't kill Jesus, keep this in your little mental memory bank, as bad as they wanted to because they were afraid of the massive crowd that was there and how much they cared for Jesus. They wanted to arrest Jesus again in Mark chapter 12, but they couldn't because of the crowd. Now, whether these people actually love Jesus is something else entirely. We all know that being popular and being loved is not the same thing. But Jesus was popular. And Pilate is a savvy politician. He recognizes the popularity of Jesus and he knows that to kill this massively popular Jewish prophet in the middle of Passover weekend would be bad juju for the Romans. There would be almost 200,000 Jews swelling the borders of Jerusalem during this time. That's not the time when you want to make any political risks. It's not the time when you want to bet that there won't be an uprising. And these religious leaders, they know that. They know that Pilate's not stupid. They know that it won't be easy to get Pilate to sentence Jesus to death. They have to be very careful. They have to frame their charges, their accusations, just right. They've only got one chance, and they've got to make it count. And so verse 1 says that they consult with one another. They talk it out. Say this. Don't say that. Say it this way. Don't say it that way. The Jews know that Pilate doesn't give a rip about Jesus claiming to be the Son of God. Why would he? Why would Pilate care about the way that the Jews worship their own God? It makes little difference to them. It's a polytheistic society. They believe in a bunch of different gods. Sure, he can be a god. She can be a god. That piece of wood over there can be a god. Whatever. As long as you guys don't go against Rome, I don't care. You see the same thing in Acts chapter 18 later as Paul is being like, attacked by the Jews for preaching Christ. They bring Paul before the Roman proconsul Gallio. And they say, Gallio, this guy, Paul, he's over here claiming to be the son of God. He's claiming that Jesus was the son of God. And before Paul could even respond to try to defend himself, Gallio says this. If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have a reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, See to it yourselves. I refuse to be the judge of these things. And this was the basic attitude of Rome towards the people that they ruled over. They didn't want to get their hands dirty. They didn't want to get involved in these religious disputes and debates. The idea that Jesus was the Son of God would have mattered very little to Pilate. But the idea that Jesus was a king Now that would have mattered a great deal. The idea that this uber-popular Jewish prophet in the city of Jerusalem during the time of year where the nationalistic zeal of the Jews is ramped up to 100% would step forward and claim to be the rightful ruler of the Jews, that would be a problem. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And as he asks that question, he has to be thinking, what kind of king is this? How can you be the king of the Jews? The leaders of the Jewish people have brought you here to me, covered in spit, having already been beaten because they apparently hate you. The religious leaders continue to bring accusations against Jesus. Jesus. And as they do, Pilate looks at Jesus one more time and he asks him, have you no answer to make? You see how many charges they bring against you? But the text says that they remain silent. Why does Jesus remain silent here? Jesus has made the religious leaders look foolish on more than one occasion. Every single time Jesus comes into contact with them in some kind of public debate, he makes them look foolish. He embarrasses them with the wisdom of his response in the way that he displays the ignorance of their thinking. So why not just do that again here? Why not do what you've done and do a miracle? Rescue yourself. Why not access your privilege as the Son of God and call down 10,000 angels to rescue from what's about to happen? Well, as we've walked through the book of Mark, we've seen already that anytime someone tries to get in Jesus' way and stop him from going to the cross, they get rebuked. This is the will of God for Jesus' life. But there's more. Mark's gospel is not usually fleshed with detail, right? He kind of just gives you what he needs to give you and then he keeps going. And so here when it says that Jesus was silent that may mean that he didn't say anything, or it may mean that he didn't say much, or it may mean that he didn't try to defend himself. As you read this account in the Gospel of John as well, I think think there's reason to believe that Mark doesn't intend to communicate that Jesus didn't say anything. We see here from Mark's account that he at least does say something. I think what Mark intends to communicate is that Jesus didn't try to save himself. He didn't try to make a speech on his behalf. He didn't try to act as his own lawyer as he stands before Pilate. On trial. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says something like this When you say king, and when I say king, we mean two totally different things. You see, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom was here before Rome, my kingdom is here during Rome, and my kingdom will exist for 10,000 centuries after Rome. If my kingdom were of this world, my disciples, my followers, they would pull out their swords and try to free me right here, right now, but they don't. Because my kingdom is something different and I'm a different kind of king that you don't have a category for. But even with this extended dialogue, Jesus doesn't try to save himself. Meditating on this later, many years later, decades later, as Paul writes to some of these Christians that he knows that are suffering. He wants to encourage them. He wants to teach them how to think about how to suffer and endure their persecution. And it is this very scene that he meditates on and writes about. In 1 Peter, he says this, For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In the mind of Peter, there are two reasons here why Jesus doesn't defend himself, why he doesn't try to vindicate himself, why he doesn't try to act as his own attorney on trial. As an example to us, and because he trusts his Father. This is so important for our lives, brothers and sisters. You see, we live in a world of authority. There's no way for us to escape it. The people who want to do away with authority usually end up becoming the authority figures themselves if they can ever try to carry out anarchy. God has built authority into the very fabric of this world. Teachers have authority. Police officers have authority. Parents have authority. Pastors have authority. Kings and governors and congressmen and councilmen have authority. One of the reasons why we pray in our pastoral prayer every Sunday for people in authority is because we want God to lead them to use their authority to do us good. We don't pray to ask that authority to be taken away by God because we know it's not possible. But the reality of living life in a fallen world is that the authority will be abused. Teachers abuse authority. Police officers abuse authority. Parents abuse authority. Pastors abuse authority. Kings and governors obviously abuse authority. So how are we as Christians to live life with any kind of hope in this fallen world while we wait for Jesus to come and take us home? We can look at Jesus... We can look at his example. Jesus didn't come as a political figure trying to overthrow the corrupt societal and authority structures that exist in this world. He came as one who suffered under them as an example to us in how we might live in this world. When we're reviled, we should not revile in return. When we're cursed, we should not curse in return. When someone does us wrong, we don't go and we don't seek vengeance against them. Now, to be clear, I don't think to, Jesus or Peter intends to communicate that anytime we ever suffer under any kind of authority, we should just kind of shut up and take it. When he's talking about slaves, on the one hand, he says, hey, be obedient to your masters, maybe you might be able to win them. But also, seek your freedom if you can. I don't think Peter or Jesus intends to communicate that a woman who is suffering under abuse at home, for example, should just shut up and take it. Women, if anyone in this church ever suffers from abuse, You should come immediately to one of the elders and talk to us about it. Or call the police if you have to. I don't think that's what Jesus intends to say here. I think what he intends to say is, as you live your life, under these authority structures, insofar as it is possible and you cannot escape it, here's how you suffer well. And then Peter tells us how Jesus was able to suffer well. He says he was able to do it because he had entrusted himself to his father. He had entrusted Himself to the judge who judges justly. Jesus was able to suffer under Pilate who judged unjustly because He knew that one day Jesus Christ, excuse me, the Father would render a judgment that would be fully just. And the same is true for us. We can suffer injustice in this world when we have to. Because we trust that one day God will set all things right. We trust that there is a judge that whether or not the world sees him or believes in him or acknowledges him or rejects him, there is a judge who exists who will one day render a final judgment and it will abdicate us. It will vindicate us. One more thing that we should note before we move on with the rest of the story. We should note Pilate's reaction to Jesus in verse 5. Look there again. It says, but Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. When I saw this reaction, I I just did kind of what uh, somebody who doesn't really have any training does when they want to study something in their Bibles, you know, I went and just looked up, hey, how many times does the word amazed show up in the Bible, right? And then I was like, oh, that's too much. Let me narrow my fields, like in the gospel of Mark, how many times does the word amazed come up? Because I remembered as I've studied it and preached through it, like, man, everywhere that Jesus goes, people seem to be amazed by him. I found at least 12 separate times in the gospel of Mark, people are amazed by Jesus. As soon as he begins to preach in Mark chapter one, people are amazed by him. When he heals a man in chapter 2, people are amazed by him. In Mark chapter 5, after Jesus heals the Gentile, everyone in the Decapolis is amazed by him. In chapter 6, Jesus amazes everyone in the synagogue with his authoritative teaching. When Jesus calms the storm, the disciples are amazed by him. What kind of man is this? In Mark chapter 10, it says that the disciples were even more amazed. So however amazed that they already were, now they're more amazed than that. In Mark 11, the whole crowd was amazed by Jesus in the temple. In Mark 12, when we talked about Jesus giving to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, everyone that was around that heard Jesus say that, they were amazed. And now as Jesus stands before Pilate, he too is amazed. Are you Are you amazed by Jesus? Or has he become to you just like another piece of furniture in your living room? I remember when I first moved to Seattle, right outside the window, anytime you wanted to, when it wasn't raining, which is every day, you could see Mount Rainier, this big, beautiful, snow-capped volcano off in the distance. First time I saw it, I couldn't believe it wow, this is, I live right next to a volcano. This is gorgeous. It's beautiful. It took me about two days to stop caring about that big, beautiful, amazing volcano right outside my window. I remember when we first got to Arequipa, Peru to go to language school as missionaries. <laughs> Not to one-up you, but here we go. We lived in a city surrounded by three volcanoes. Don't you dare tell a one-volcano story around me. Three volcanoes. And they were just so incredible. They were just so big and massive. And no matter where I turned, I saw a volcano, except for behind me. But then, as I walked the city streets, I just, I just stopped noticing them. They just weren't amazing to me anymore. When I got to the Amazon, and we traveled on the Amazon River, I was blown away but only on the first trip. And I lost interest maybe halfway through the first trip. By the third trip, it was all old hat. And that's what we do, isn't it? We grow cold to things. Don't let that happen in your relationship with Jesus. In the book of Mark, everyone that comes into contact with Jesus is amazed by Him. Jesus is healing, it's amazing. If he's teaching, it's amazing. If he's preaching, it's amazing. Probably if you're just sitting down with him around the dinner table, the way he eats his food, it's amazing. And here as Jesus stands silent, covered in spit, beaten and bloodied, he is still amazing. Don't grow cold to him. Don't forget about all of his miraculous deeds in your life. Don't let yourself forget the mountains of mercy that He's given you, that He is giving you even today. Stand amazed in the presence of Jesus. But back to Pilate, who is not so amazing. I've said it three times. Here's number four. Pilate is a politician. He perceives the danger of killing Jesus during Passover, but maybe there's a way out. That's what politicians do, right? They find, their, they find ways out of jams. They don't get jammed. Maybe he can keep the Jewish leaders happy by pretending to care about their complaints. And he can keep the crowds happy by not killing Jesus as he thinks that they want. And maybe he can also keep Jesus, this innocent man, alive. Maybe there's a win-win-win here for Pilate. You see, during uh, the feast of each Passover, it was customary for Rome to release a prisoner. This release was kind of like a good token that Rome would offer the Jews. Hey, I know our boots on your neck, but here's what we're going to do for you. We're going to release one of your prisoners that we've taken captive. In God's providence, the time that this would typically happen is right at the exact same time That Jesus is standing before Pilate. Look at verse 8. It says this. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. Politically, Pilate couldn't ask for a sweeter providence. I'll ask the people if they want to free Jesus or Barabbas. Ooh, terrorist, murderer, bad. Surely they'll want to kill him. Also, get to kill Barabbas, Jesus will go free, the crowd will be satisfied, the Jewish leaders can say, you know, that I at least listened to them. They can't say that I didn't try, that I didn't hear them out. Win, 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 win. But when things seem to be too good to be true, they usually are. One of the things that Pilate, as savvy as he is, didn't anticipate is the ability of the Jewish leaders to stir up the crowd. And that's what we see. Look at verse 11. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. We've talked about this before, and here we are again. The fickle crowd. The fickle crowd. We don't know for sure that this was the same crowd that had been gathered just a few days earlier, shouting and celebrating Jesus as he rode in on his royal donkey, as is typically preached. You know, they they shouted for him and celebrated one day, and they shouted, crucify for him the next. Well, in all likelihood, these are probably not the same people. There's 200,000 Jews in Jerusalem at this time. The odds that the same thousand people are present at both of these events are pretty slim. But we do know that, in general, the Jewish crowd was very pro-Jesus. We've already seen that several times today. When Jesus is teaching in the temple, he's flipping over tables, he's insulting the religious leaders... It says they wanted to kill him, they wanted to arrest him, but they couldn't. Why? Because the people loved Jesus. The religious leaders were afraid to do anything because of how much people loved Jesus. They were pro-Jesus. But the affection of the masses, it's so fickle, isn't it? Hey, kids, if you have your sermon notes, I see my daughter's crumpled up five feet away from her. If you have your sermon notes, fickle might be a word that you can ask your parents about or ask me about after the service. The king of the internet today may be the internet's villain tomorrow. Our celebrities can fall in and out of favor like that. A single tweet can change someone's life in a matter of hours. This is nothing new. This is part of human nature. We can love something one minute and then try to eviscerate it in the next. You see that taking place in America right now. America has never been a Christian nation. We have a lot of blights and stains on our history, but it has been basically Christian in its morals and values and the way that it treated Jesus Christ and his people. It honored Christ and respected much of His moral law. But within a few decades, we have begun to see this nation despise Jesus. And to consider His teachings on nearly everything from marriage and family and sexuality to grace and salvation, they see it all as blasphemy. Our hearts are fickle. The crowds are fickle. Entire nations are fickle. As Christians, we need to be prepared to stand with Christ regardless of how the winds of this world blow. You know, it's not that hard to manipulate the crowd. One of the reasons why we're very careful to do things the way we do it on a Sunday morning is because I know as a pastor how easy it is to manipulate people. You don't think this church could be twice the size it is right now? If you spent any time with me outside of Sunday morning service, you know how my personality is. With a little bit of money, a lot of personality, some lights, some bells, some whistles, this church could be pretty big. We could have people sitting all the way up in here. And that's not a bad thing, but it's a bad thing if we use the wrong thing to try to persuade people to follow Jesus Christ faithfully. A little known fact about Billy Graham is that his crusades that he would have. They would have people planted all throughout the audience. And after he would preach, these people who were planted would be the first ones to stand up so that as he made his altar call, people would move forward to the front. People are shy. They're timid. Nobody wants to be the first one to go up at an altar call. Billy Graham knew, if I can get somebody to stand up first, they'll follow. It's easy to manipulate people. It's not that hard. So in verse 11, when we read that these chief priests stirred up the crowd to get the people going, to get them to release Barabbas, how hard do you think it was really? One of my favorite pictures in uh, history is from the life of August Landmesser. August Landmesser was a German who was engaged to a Jew. He eventually fathered uh, a child with her. And the famous photo is him standing in a crowd of Nazis doing the Zieg Heil salute to Hitler as he is christening a boat for the German Navy. And the thing that's unique about August as he stands there amongst these Nazis saluting their Fuhrer is that his hand isn't raised. As a matter of fact, his arms are crossed A clear sign of displeasure. August knew what it was like to go against the power of groupthink, the power of extreme social pressure. It's so relatively easy for us right now to stand with Jesus in America, but it is going to grow increasingly difficult it is right now growing increasingly difficult. The crowds in our nation, in our state, in our city, are getting whipped up into a frenzy by Satan and his minions. As the world and the people around us grow increasingly ardent in their opposition to Jesus, as they cry out with one voice against the Gospel of Jesus Christ, my question for the members of this church is, What will you do? Will you join the mob? If your neighbor taps you on the shoulder and says, come on, shout with me, crucify him, crucify him, are you going to yell with him? Don't think it beyond yourself, my friend, to be pressured into shouting out for the death of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul, in one, excuse me, Peter, in one breath, says, Jesus, no matter what, if everyone else betrays you, even if I have to die, I will not betray you. And just a few hours later, he stands in the courtyard going, I swear to God, I swear to God, I don't know that guy, I'm not with him, I don't even know what you're talking about. Don't think it beyond yourself. The only hope we have of staying faithful is if Jesus Christ keeps us by His power. In John chapter 17, Jesus says as much when He prays to the Father. He says, I have given them Your Word, and the world has hated them. I do not ask that You take them out of the world, but that You keep them from the evil one. This is where our hope must lie. Our hope cannot rest ultimately in ourselves or in the tide of popular opinion or in kings and rulers, especially not in kings and rulers. Consider Pilate again. Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. He doesn't want to kill Jesus. He even asked the crowd in verse 14, he says, what evil has he done? Somebody tell me, give me some evidence. What has this guy done? And the crowd responds more. Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate knows, just like we know, that when people begin to shout, they don't actually have a valid argument. They just want to win. And he has a choice to make: Will Pilate do what is politically expedient? Or will he do what is right and just? In verse 15, we read this. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. It's easy for us to look at those in authority in our lives, from our bosses to our governors. And to trust that they will be the people that stand on principle when the time matters. That's the platform that they run on, isn't it? But friends, we have seen time and time again that at first what may appear to be conviction turns out to be just another man and another woman doing what humans do, saying what is popular and easy at the time. I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. I am not in favor of gay marriage. These are the words of President Barack Obama, who wasn't president yet, running in 2008. Four years later, in an interview with ABC's Robin Roberts, then President Obama announced that he had evolved on the issue of gay marriage. He supports it completely. Unless anyone here think that I'm Republican trying to pick on a Democrat, our current president is no better. It's too easy to pick on politicians, though, right? I mean, we know this is what they do. But we see this dynamic played out in the church as well. Men and women who at one time affirmed a biblical understanding of family, sexuality, gender, the Scriptures, the uniqueness of Christ and salvation and more, they've shifted. They've evolved. And how convenient that these shifts and these evolutions have taken place right as the culture around them has increased the pressure. As a church, we must stand on conviction. We must be better than politicians. As our conviction stands firm, it must be standed, excuse me, it must stand firm in the truth of God's word. We live in a world where the winds blow this way and that way. Political movements come and they go. What is popular today may be despised tomorrow. What is abhorred right now may be celebrated in the next day. Will we move with these winds? Will we adjust our convictions to the turning of the tide of popularity? Or will we remain steadfast? Not trusting in ourselves, not trusting in our our head full of knowledge, not trusting in the fact that we're super Christians, but trusting in God, that He will keep us, even if it costs us dearly. Even if we're afraid. You know, fear is not a bad thing. Fear guides us. Proverbs 1, Russell Berger read this morning, leads us into the path of wisdom. But fearing the wrong things is very dangerous. <coughs> fearing man more than you fear God, that's very dangerous. The religious leaders, Peter, Peter, Pilate, all the characters in this story that have betrayed Jesus, they've all feared the wrong thing. They feared death. They feared losing their power, their authority. They feared an uprising. But none of them have feared God. If Pilate would have feared God more than man, he would not have had the blood of Jesus on his hands. If the Pharisees feared God more than man, They would not have used their power as the religious leaders of God's people to condemn God's Son to death. If kings and governors feared God, they would never kill an innocent person for political expediency. And if the leaders of our church feared God, they wouldn't compromise the gospel. Brother elders in this church, I pray to God that you're listening. So what do you fear? What do you fear most? What fears govern your life, lead you to make the decisions that you make? Man? The things of this world? If you fear these things more than you fear God, it will always lead to compromise in your life. It will always lead to a lapse in integrity. It will always lead to a compromise of the gospel. But fearing God leads to conviction, it leads to endurance, it leads to steadfastness, it leads to durability, it leads to wisdom. It leads to faithfulness. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, or if you're here this morning and you are a Christian and perhaps you've never heard anybody talk so much about fear before, you may be wondering, what's up with that? Why why all this fear talk? Isn't isn't God a God of love? Well, yes, friends, God is a God of love. And that is the exact reason why we should fear Him. Because God loves justice. God wants to punish the man who kicks a pregnant woman in the stomach. God wants to punish the Hitlers and the Mals. And the Idi Amin. But the gospel says that we are not in a separate class from these men. We live lives that are unjust. We sin and we rebel against God. And because God is a God of justice, we should be afraid of him. Because his justice will come landing down on our necks. So what hope is there? For us as sinners under this God who judges justly. Well you see God sent his son Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ didn't fear man. He didn't fear death. He didn't fear the ways of this world. He didn't fear a lack of popularity. He perfectly obeyed the will of his father. And he lived a perfect life. And then he died at the hands of unrighteous men so that we might be saved from our sins, so that we might escape the judgment. He underwent the judgment. And if we repent of our sins because we fear God, and if we trust in Jesus Christ that He is who He says He is and that He will do what He promises to do, if we stand on those promises, we can be freed from ever fearing again. It's kind of like when a man and a woman get married. A wife agrees to submit to her husband and now she doesn't have to submit to every man who comes along and tries to strong arm her. In the same way, when we fear God, we are freed from all the other fears that this world offers us. It's hard to hear his voice though as he calls out to you, isn't it? I mean, the voice of the crowd is deafening. It's right here all the time. It's there with Twitter. It's there with Facebook. It's there with the television. It's there with your co-workers. It's there with your family members. It may even be here this morning with the voices of gossip in the church. But don't listen to the crowd. Listen to God. At the end of this account, Jesus is handed over to be crucified Because that's what the crowd does. It takes the the good, the beautiful, the true, and it kills it. But Jesus takes the bad, the ugly, and the worthless, and He gives life to it. He did it for me. Which means, I think, that there's no one that He can't do it for. So is Jesus the King of the Jews? It doesn't seem like it, does it? I certainly don't think Pilate would have thought that he was. Or the Pharisees or the crowd standing around him. Come back next week. And we'll keep looking at the text to see if Jesus really is the King. Let's pray. Father, we as a church submit ourselves to you as Lord. And we ask that you would help us to be faithful servants in your kingdom. And we ask this so that your name might be glorified.